0: Alright, I was telling Stan that we were going to be in Romans 13 this morning, but uh, we're going to start off mostly in Matthew 5, so if you want to go ahead and open up there. So, Romans 13 is an exciting, controversial uh, passage, and it's going to get us thinking about the role of government and the extent of government in our lives, Um, questions like Is a government allowed to set the speed limit? Should they be allowed biblically to set the speed limit? Should they be permitted to invoke curfews? Uh, Or what about excessive taxing? What is actually qualified as excessive taxing? Uh, We live in a country that is built on the foundation of rebelling against excessive taxing, right? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? What's that? Oh, I thought somebody was offering a comment. You're good. Right. <laughs> um, and most recently, we've come into uh, a lot of conversation with this passage, along with First Peter chapter two, in relation to uh, mask mandates. Should the government be allowed to mandate mask wearing or mandatory vaccinations? Um, things along these lines. And what should our position as Christians be on those things? When should we submit? How far should we submit? But a lot of those things are going to have to wait until next week. We're going to get into the the application of those things. Next week, this week, we're going to be doing a lot of groundwork trying to establish a a foundation for uh, governmental authority and why it is that we submit to governmental authority. So it's been a few months now, I guess, since we've gone through our Bible study methods class, our hermeneutics class. Somebody remind me, what are the basic steps of Bible study? Context. OK, context is important, right? Context is key. You need to focus on context. Observation. What's that? Observation. Observation. Good. And then what? Observation. Interpretation. 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 After you observe and interpret the What's text, said what? What's that? Cheat sheet. Cheat sheet. What does your cheat sheet say we should you do after? Yeah, Observation. All Interpretation. <laughs> all right, and then what? What's after that? Oh, it's application, is is last yeah, application. So, we are going to reserve, in large part, the application for this passage until next week. So, next week will be fun and, again, controversial, hopefully enlightening. You won't get all the answers next week, but uh, that's where we're going to go with our Bible study next week. For this week... Like I said, we want to uh, establish a foundation, do some groundwork, and then we'll get there. Uh, Last week, as we were in Romans chapter 12, we were noticing how many different imperatives there were, that Paul is giving command after command after command. And he's doing so to individuals. And as we were noticing that, we were making some connections to uh, Luke 6. We went back and looked at Luke 6, where Jesus was preaching his Sermon on the Mount uh, and talking about how we should love those who persecute us, And we should um, give preference to our neighbor. And this week we're going to look at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 5. So if you're not already in Matthew chapter 5, let's turn there. This is the place that's most often thought of when speaking of the Sermon on the Mount. And before we actually get into the meat of the text, let's look back at verses 1 and 2. And see if we can establish who Jesus is talking to. So Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Who is the audience here that Jesus is addressing? disciples. So, you said Matthew. Matthew 5, yep. And Logan, you said the disciples. It's good. So verse 1 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth, and he began, he began to teach them. So all of what is preceding our passage today is Jesus talking to the crowds, talking to the disciples, again, to individuals, uh, telling them how we ought to live, telling them how they ought to live, and we, by extension, how we ought to live. So let's pick up in verse 38. Matthew 5, verse 38 says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he's here harking back to the Old Testament. Uh, this is what is known as uh, lex talionis. It's uh, the Latin for law of retaliation. Lex talionis, law of retaliation. It's tit for tat. You do this to me, and I'm going to do that back to you. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And we can see this in several places in the Old Testament in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19, is where we see this principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Um, I'm seeing some confused looks. So just again, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24. Deuteronomy 19, and I want to spend some time looking at that passage in Deuteronomy 19. We're going to do a bit of bouncing back and forth this morning, so keep your finger in Matthew 5. But I'm going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 19, and then when we get there, going to get somebody to read that passage for us, Deuteronomy 19: 14 through 21.
1: All right. You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set, in your inheritance which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests, and the judges, who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely. Then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among (coughs) you. Keep going. Yes, please. 21. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot.
0: Alright, so notice the context of this. They're not handling this <laughs> among themselves, right? They're standing before uh, priests, standing before judges and these judges are making judgment calls based upon evidence um, and the, it's, they come up with a, a result that is punitive. They are uh, punishing a crime. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot and it even mentions that Part of the reason for doing this is to purge the evil out from among you so that the rest will hear and be afraid. So this is something that is set in a judicial type setting uh, for a judicial system to be put into action. Back in that other Cross-reference In Leviticus 24, it uh, talked about how even an animal should be exchanged life for life, and it says that uh, it is to be made right. So if somebody kills somebody else's ox here, to provide a different ox to take that ox's place. Uh, but for murder, the correct response would be death, right? To put that person to death. Again, same principle, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Um, This has become the foundational basis for all judicial systems afterward. This Lex Talionis tit for tat trying to pursue justice. That there be equal punishment for a crime that is committed. That it's not too much or too little, but that the punishment must fit the crime. And before we even got here to Deuteronomy 19, we see that God instituted government well before this, back in Genesis. So the first time we see an establishing of government is in Genesis chapter 9. So let's turn there real quick. Again, we're bouncing around for a minute. So Genesis chapter 9, this is right after the flood, after the ark has settled back down. And could somebody read for us Genesis 9, 1 through 7, please?
1: I got it? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and
0: multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive
1: shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant." Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I
0: will require, it. and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his
1: blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you,
0: be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. All right, so you notice that he starts and he ends with that command, the easiest commandment in history, right? To be fruitful and multiply. Uh, In verses 2 and 3, we see that authority is given to man, that he should exercise his authority over the beasts, that he is to be in charge, right? Um, And then verse 4, we see that there are conditions given only you shall not eat the flesh of that life, that is its blood. And then we get to verses five and six. And this is where we see the, the consequences that are established. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for he is the image of God. He made man. So we see that man has authority, that there is consequences. Um, And this same kind of principle, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? So this gets us back to where we first started, back in Matthew chapter 5. After seeing the law be established, God is the one who has given the law. He's the one who has established government. He's set up a system for governments in which they are to operate. And then back here in Matthew chapter 5, picking up in verse 38, where he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Verse 39, he says, but I say to you, so we have to realize Jesus is God, right? He is the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the great I am. He is, uh, in the beginning was a word, right? So he was there giving this command originally, but it was just that he was giving it to a certain group of people for a certain situation, right? He was giving it to the judicial system so they could take and they could handle it. Now he is speaking. Once again, we have to remind ourselves back in verse 1 and 2 to disciples, to a crowd, to individuals about human relationships and how we are to operate in human relationships. So instead of an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in personal relationships, he says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the cheek, on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We talked about that last week and how that's a sign of shame and we shouldn't be... We shouldn't let that shame overcome us, but we should um, be willing to, again, give preference to the other person. Verse 40, if anyone wants to see you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So this principle, I can't remember if we talked about it last week or not, but... Um, if somebody asked you to go a mile with them, go with them too. If they ask for your shirt, give them your coat also. Uh, at this time, there was a, a law in place where, the remember that Rome was over Israel, right? They were ruling over Israel. And so if there was a Roman soldier who needed something, he would ask somebody else, hey, will you carry my bag for me for a mile? And they were obligated by law to carry that for a mile for the officer. Um, to give them something that they had need. We see this principle with um, Christ on the cross, right? And how he hands his cross off to uh, Simon, is that right? I always get Simon and Joseph of Arimathea mixed up, but um, he handed off his cross to Simon, uh, and he was commissioned by the government, you're to carry this, and he had to listen, he had to submit to the government in doing that. So we see a, a kind of flop, a kind of difference here from verse 39 and following. Jesus established the Old Testament law, said, this is what the law says, I for I, truth for truth, but I say to you again in these personal relationships. So we have to recognize and realize that there's a difference between judicial systems and how they are to function and operate, and human relationships and personal relationships and how we are to operate in our personal relationships. Again, last week we talked about how we are not, as Christians, a lawless people, uh, but we are under the perfect law of liberty. So, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, love our neighbor as ourselves. That is where we should find ourselves under the law of Christ, not under the Old Testament law. So, with that being said, how might Misapplying this affect us. If we apply verses thirty-nine through forty-four to the judicial system, what kind of problems might result from that? They couldn't punish anybody. Why not? Because they have to. This is for individuals and not the judicial system, right? Yeah. Good. So, if the judicial system has to be able to punish wrong or then be able to punish evil in order to keep society from energy, I guess. good yeah absolutely yeah. Christ here talking to individuals and addressing personal relationships he is calling for grace right uh, if we saw that in a uh, law court that wouldn't work out right especially if we were the ones who were harmed right we were the ones who were sinned against and say somebody stole your car and they went before a judge and the judge said it's okay, don't don't worry about it right, uh, I'm not going to make you pay that or reimburse that, no eye for eye, no tooth for tooth um, but instead just turn the other cheek, right um, even take it off his coat and had it to go the extra mile, right, that doesn't really work in a judici- judicial system, that doesn't uh, fulfill that desire that God had set in place to preserve justice for equal justice that the punishment would fit the crime Uh, the judge just decides that he's going to forgive any criminal that comes before him 70 times 7 like Jesus tells the individual to do again we would live in a society full of anarchy that's not how God has established things Mm. And again, on the flip side, can you imagine applying this Lex Talionis tit-for-tat, eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth type law to your personal relationships, how that might look. Uh, If somebody showed up 10 minutes late for Sunday school today, sorry, you're going to have to stay 10 minutes after and do a bunch of Hail Marys, right? Um, That's (laughs) not how it works. Um, But we do, in a sense, try to achieve this. If somebody cuts us off on the road, we have a desire to Cut them off again, right? That's our sinful nature. That's not how God designed it. He said, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, treat the other person with grace. Somebody comes over to your house and they break a dish, you don't go and break their dish. retaliation, right? There's a difference between human governments and personal relationships, and we need to keep that in mind. So now going back to Romans, we saw leading up to where we're going to be this morning, Back in chapter 12, that uh, Paul was addressing these personal relationships, talking to individuals, giving them these commands. This is how you ought to operate as you are dealing with one another, showing grace and giving preference to one another. But now, in verse 1, he's kind of switching the tone a little bit. Who is he addressing here in verse 1? Who is he addressing in
1: verse 1? Brothers, brethren.
0: He's addressing every person, right? So back in chapter 12, he was addressing brethren. We saw that pretty clearly in verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren. And. Uh, He went on to talk about interpersonal relationships, both within the church and without the church, and how we ought to operate with this uh, law of grace under the perfect law of liberty, so to speak. Uh, And then here in verse 1 of chapter 13, he addresses every person. uh, And he says that every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities so when it's talking about subjection here it's a word that's used for placing yourself under somebody else's authority uh, which seems pretty obvious to us right but uh, literally it means to put yourself to subject yourself under the authority of another it's not the same word that we see used for obeying. You know, a lot of people make a bigger deal about that than other people. It's, it has kind of that connotation to submit yourself under, but not necessarily absolute obedience. So that is kind of important to keep in mind um, as we're talking about every person subjecting themselves to governing authorities. Now, again, a lot of us want to jump to, well... What about me, right? Um, who is a governing authority for me? Does that mean my president? Is Joe Biden my governing authority? Or uh, what about the governor or the mayor or the sheriff even? Uh, some people will go and they'll say, well, the president, no, no person is a governing authority over us, right? It's the, the Constitution of the United States. We are governed by a piece of paper. Again, Jeremy's going to tackle all that next week. That's more of the application side of things. Um, it's important, but we have to remember that um, this is written to first century Romans, right? That was Paul's intent as he was writing to everyone here in the first century Um, We've established every person, it's not just to believers, but it's to uh, believers and unbelievers alike, or to submit themselves to governing authorities. Is there anything in the text that would give us a clue as to whether or not this includes us today? So, every person then, for sure, they were told submit to governing authorities. But there are people who will look at this and they'll say, well, that was just for them. There's another group of people and they'll say, well, this is for everybody for all time under every governmental system. What do you guys think based on the text? Should we understand this is only for first century or is this applicable to us today?
1: In those which
0: are established by God, well, he still establishes governing bodies. Today. All right, Good. Yeah, my version, the New American Standard, says there is no authority except from God. That never stopped, right? That never changed. So even the authorities that are in place today are established and governed by God. So we have to keep that in mind. This is not just for every person in the first century. This is for every person throughout all time. And again, I would even extend that to say that uh, it goes to... Um, every type of government. So whether or not you're talking about a, a monarchy or a democracy, whether or not you're talking about Democrats or Republicans being in power, which changes constantly. It doesn't even mean the same thing today as it meant 20 years ago to say that you were a Republican or a Democrat, right? But no matter what governmental system you are under, we need to recognize that that government has been established and put into power by God himself. One of the reasons that many people think that this is talking just to the first century um, aside from the fact that they don't continue to read like Mike did and pick up the context that every government is established by God, there is no government that is not established by God is because in this time there was a big tax revolt going on in Rome that people were incredibly anti-tax, they were incredibly anti-government revolting against that. Kind of like the zealots were in Israel saying, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, I'm just going to step back and do my own thing. I'm going to uh, be autonomous and govern myself. And this may impact why Paul was writing this to them. In fact, they may have even uh, approached him and asked him how to handle this. But that doesn't negate the fact that uh, this is written with every governmental system in mind, uh, both then and today. So, stepping back for a second, um, what was Christ's view of government? How did Jesus view government? Just thinking through Jesus' interactions with the government. Any thoughts on what his Jesus said, give the Caesar
1: what is Caesar's." Caesar
0: Okay, good. That is the, the go-to text, right? The go-to passage. So Jesus, um, trying to be tricked by all these people, they brought him a coin. Well, he asked for a coin, right? In Matthew 22, Mark 12, and he said, well, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God's what is God's. And we just see the great wisdom in that, um, and we're like, oh, look at that stinger. Jesus got him, right? That's at least how I am, because I love when Jesus just puts it to the man, and um, these people who are trying to trick him, they end up looking like fools. But really within that, we can see, uh, like Dory pointed out, the fact that Jesus was submitting to that governmental authority, which he had himself subjected himself to. Uh, We, by nature, are subject to those governing authorities. Jesus, being God incarnate, stepped into that, and we just should take a minute to pause at the Incredible humility of that—that that he would subject himself under governments um, which may or may not be godly, which uh, certainly did uh, pose a threat to him, which certainly were wicked and sinful. Uh, go back even to uh, the beginning; we see that Jesus was threatened in his life. Right? What was Jesus' relationship to to Caesar? He was king of Caesar. Instead. Amen. <laughs> uh, that's probably where we need to start. Yeah. So again, all authority is established by God, right? God is the one who establishes every government, every authority, even the the fact that there is a government is put in place by God, who um, became incarnate and subjected himself back under that. But uh, in 1st century Israel, how was Caesar related to the, the Israelite people? He was ruling over them in a century. right? What was going on there? Yeah, he was persecuting them, right? He'd come in and, and taken over the whole area and Who had he put in charge in his stead? Who was operating as Caesar's right hand in Israel? Pontius Pilate. Mm All right, Pontius Pilate. And then more locally, who do we see? Herod. Herod, all right. So there's a series of steps and levels of government, Um, all of whom Jesus submitted himself under. (laughs) Joseph is losing bottle caps up here. Um, And again, going back to the very beginning of Christ's life, he was on the run from Herod, wasn't he? Uh, Herod had put out this edict to have all these children killed because he had heard that there was a king of the Jews when Herod was jealous and he said, no, I am the king of the Jews. Um, So Jesus was again, putting himself willingly into a world in which he would be uh, persecuted even from the very beginning and then towards the end. Yes. Are you confusing the two Herods? Uh, the no Herod's I haven't Jesus mentioned the two Herods was King Herod. Uh huh. The Herod at the time Jesus was
1: crucified was a different Herod and he wasn't he wasn't over Pilate. He was equal to Pilate. Actually there was a third, but there's three people in Herod King, King Herod's uh-huh. uh they divided his kingdom into three parts. One to Pilate, one to Herod the north, and
0: can't remember his name. You see the Southwest part. Yeah, so when Jesus was born, he was born under one Herod who was seeking to take his life. And then uh, a different Herod took his place. I believe it was his son, right? Um, or he didn't like slice. He only got a third of the kingdom. Yeah, it was a different Herod uh, at the end of his life who Jesus was under then, right? And we see even then that Jesus wasn't rebelling against this Herod. Uh, At the arrest of Christ, Peter took out his sword and he chopped off Malchus' ear, right? And Jesus told him... you live by the sword you die by the sword so uh, we see all throughout the, the life of christ no matter which authority he was under uh that he was submitting to that authority um even all the while being uh over those kings and having his authority that was um that he had handed off to those kings and then subjected himself to uh we see this before pilate in john nineteen eleven. Uh, Jesus answered and said, "You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin." That's another one of those verses where I'm like, "All right, King Jesus, uh, giving it to the man." Right? Just reminding them, your authority comes from God, uh, but He still subjected Himself to that authority. Ooh, and Jesus,
1: Jesus could have. Uh said something different. I mean, there were, yeah. there, the Maccabees had revolted whatever, 200 years before this. The Zealots were in existence at this time. One of the disciples was a Zealot that wanted to throw off the Yoke of Rome as well. There were rebels running around. Um, and it just brings to mind that, you know, we're supposed to live quiet, peaceful lives. Under the governing, the governing authorities, but of course, fortunately, you don't have to answer this this week. But how that applies is is the challenge.
0: So, yeah, it's, that's know, where the rub is, right? That's right. That's right. All right. So notice that in that passage in John nineteen eleven, Jesus didn't say, "You have no authority." Uh, But he said the authority that you do have, it comes from God. So you need to step back and recognize and acknowledge the source of your authority. Now, of course, Jesus was... uh unique situation, um, so this is not necessarily prescriptive, telling us that this is exactly how we got to operate, um, so going to where Andy's at, it's more descriptive of what Jesus did, in fact, Jesus is the one who submitted himself under that authority, um, he could have left, right, he could have called legions of angels and he could have been out of there in a moment, but this was all his plan from the very beginning, uh, could I get somebody to turn to Acts 4? Acts chapter 4, and to read for us verses 27 and 28. Mm -hmm. Who's got that? All right. Joseph. Uh,
1: For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur.
0: All right, so both Herod and Pontius Pilate, they were there predestined by the hand of God to do whatever it was that he had decided. Um, so God was pulling the strings all along. He knew exactly what was going on. Um, not surprised by it at all. And Joseph, go ahead and stay there, and we'll come back to Acts 4 in a moment. Uh, Logan, were the other one who... Want to read? Yeah. All right. Will you turn to Isaiah 40? We'll read there in a second. Um, But another verse to take in mind, just to realize that God has not only established all authority, but He is even directing this authority. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wants. Wherever God desires for the kings to go, He is establishing and directing Uh, these different governments throughout time. He's doing it with the good governments and the bad governments. He is doing it absolutely sinlessly according to His perfect plan. Uh, Are you in Isaiah 40, Logan? Yes, sir. All right, we read for us verses 23 and 24. We'll see here another example of how God is uh, directing things. Isaiah 40, 23 and 24. Yes, please. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stone. Alright, so again, God is absolutely in charge, right? He is calling the shots. So go back to Romans 13, we see that every person throughout all time is to be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and that which exists is established by God. We have to recognize that from the get go that God is the highest authority and he is given authority to others uh, but he is the ultimate authority. Now um, in verse 2 and 6 we'll see that God is establishing governments. Um, so it says in verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So there's, a, again, a, a judgment. There's a consequence for opposing these authorities. Verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes. The rulers are servants devoting themselves to this very thing. So God establishes these governments, and He desires for us to submit to them. And then He establishes uh, condemnation for those who are not submitting to these different governments. It could be speaking. This condemnation could be speaking of the, the eschatological condemnation, the condemnation that we'll receive in the end time before we're when we're standing before the the judgment seat. Um, but it's more likely speaking to the judgment that God is mediating to those who are being governed by the governing authorities. These governing authorities are acting as a a mediation between God and man and they will be judged by uh, these governments themselves that he has appointed as the servants over them. Uh, We see this in the, the life of Paul. How Paul submitted himself to this authority and he was willing to accept the consequences that were handed out by these authorities. So in Acts 25, uh, as he's standing before, uh, it's either Festus or Felix. It's got to be Festus, right? Felix is 24. He says, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true, of which these men accuse me, no one can hold me over, hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So he says, if I did something wrong, go ahead and take my life, go ahead and kill me. That's right. That's what I deserve. But if not, then hand me to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. And just as Jim brought out, there were different Herods that were in power at different times. There were also different Caesars that were in power at different times. And the Caesar that uh, Paul here is appealing to is the same Caesar that was in power as Paul was writing this. Uh, it is Nero. Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus. He reigned from 54 to 68. And I have some quotes here about this uh, Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, uh, who was in power when Paul was writing this to the Romans saying that you need to submit yourself to these authorities. These authorities are established by God. So Josephus said about Nero in Antiquities 20, Eight two, that he had his own mother Acropina, publicly put to death, and then uh, he had his wife Octavia slew as well. That both his mom and his wife were put to death at his command because he, well, his mom had had his dad put to death so that he could be in power, and then his wife said something that upset him, so both those ladies just they're they're gone, right? Uh, this is the man who was in power, this wicked man, Nero. Tacitus, in his Annals 15.44, he says that Christians under Nero were subjected to the duration derision of the people, dressed in skins of wild beasts and exposed to be torn to pieces by dogs in the public games. They were crucified or condemned to be burnt, And at nightfall, they served in the place of lamps to lighten the darkness. Nero's own gardens were being used for spectacle. Again, this is a man that is ruling in Rome when Paul is writing to Rome saying, subject yourself to the governing authorities. Uh, Suetonius he places the martyrdoms of both Peter and Paul at Rome under the reign of Nero. So this man, again, that Paul is telling them to submit to is a man who ultimately is responsible for Paul's death. However, not ultimately, because God is in control of all things, right? He's the one who is um, sovereign over everything. So we need to um, take that into account. Both Jesus' understanding of governmental authority, Paul's uh, Background and who he was writing to, and where he was as he was writing to these people. Um, And then kind of take that into account as we're trying to figure out well, what do we do with this whole passage, right? Uh, Going back to verse 6, Romans 13, verse 6, he says, For because of this you pay taxes. So there are real life applications to the fact that we're under governing authorities. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Uh, That same word for servants is the word that is used for deacons in the church. So those who serve as civil leaders, as judges in the military, those who serve as uh, police or tax collectors, they are recognized as being servants of God in a a similar sense. Deacons are recognized as being servants of God in the church. I had a teacher back in college, he was telling a story once about how he got pulled over for speeding. And as the officer was handing him a ticket, he said, well, thank you for being a minister of God, referencing this passage. Uh, The officer wasn't caught up on Romans 13 and all the nuances of Romans 13. He thought he was being lippy and uh, being sarcastic with him. And he came back and... he was not very kind to him, and so Whoa. my professor had to explain to him, well, no, the, the Bible says you're servant and a deacon. He's like, okay, whatever, and he just left. But <laughs> uh, We need to have that mentality, that understanding. Um, the cop's name wasn't Rex Dana, was it? Um, <laughs> Did you ever have that happen to you, Rex? <laughs> Thank you for this no, ticket, no. servant of no. God. <laughs> I've had to present a driver's license uh, yeah. and worthiness we get temple recommend. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> wonder if that helps. Oh, sorry. That's the that's wrong one. Here you go. <laughs> Very sly. Yeah. All right. So, hopefully, it should be clear to us from uh, these verses so far that uh, we do not have absolute freedom uh, from the authority of government. That we are told to subject ourselves to government. Uh, Our Lord himself subjected himself to a wicked government. Paul, the author of this, subjected himself to a wicked government. However, uh, some have used this verse to say that we must submit to absolutely everything that the government says. Are there any examples from Scripture you can think of of people who did not submit themselves absolutely to government. Moses' sure. mom didn't. Yeah, that's right. She held back, right? And the, the midwives as well. The pharaoh said, you need to kill these babies and the midwives, they lied. All these vigorous women, right? These Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptians. Uh, they didn't subject themselves to that wicked rule. Yes. So what
1: do you
0: do then? We'll talk about that next week. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah, those who were late to class have to stay after, so. <laughs> Absalom. Nobody
1: saw these.
0: <laughs> what were you saying, Absalom,
1: David, um, Peter, uh, and Acts.
0: Um, yeah. There's a lot. There is a lot. Yep. All right, since you mentioned Peter and Acts, uh, let's go there. Well, actually, you're already there, right? You still in Acts 4? Oh, yeah. All right, Uh, will you read for us verses 18 through 20 of Acts 4?
1: Uh, and, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Uh, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard.
0: All right. So this is Peter and John. They're told to stop preaching. They said, no, we're going we're gonna to listen to God instead of man. Uh, and they keep doing it in chapter 5. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Um, this is after they had been put in jail again for preaching Christ says, During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So this angel let them out. This angel, this messenger of God, lets them out. They go and they listen to the angel, and they preach. Now jump down to verse 27. It says, When they had brought them in, they got arrested again, they stood before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. (laughs) The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So they recognize the authority of the people, but they submitted to the authority of God rather than these wicked governing Authorities, And then down to verse 41 and 42, it says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, after being let off, obviously, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Later on in chapter 12, we see something similar where Peter gets locked up and uh, he gets let out by an angel and then he dips. He's like, I'm, I'm out of town, I'm leaving So he goes on the run from these uh, governing authorities who are put in place by God, but they're acting wickedly. Uh, We see the same thing, again, in the Old Testament under Pharaoh and how many people didn't listen to Pharaoh. We saw this with Rahab and how Rahab hid the spies. She didn't listen to those governing authorities. Uh, Book of Revelation, we see how. Uh, People are told, don't take the mark of the beast, right? Which is going to be handed down by the governing authorities. But uh, I want to go back and I want to look in Daniel. Because I think we see this most clearly in the book of Daniel. So turn with me back to Daniel. We'll look at the very first verse. We're just going to pick random verses. We're going to try to fly through this. quickly. So Daniel 1.1 1, 1 says in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vassals of the house of God and he brought them into the land. So Nebuchadnezzar, under the, the direction of the Lord, he went in, he took over uh, Jerusalem. Look down at verse 9. Again, we see the same thing. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. This favor came to Daniel because God had given it to him. Um, yes. My eye caught something else in verse 17 where it said that these four youth, God gave them knowledge and intelligence. But let's look at verse 26 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 26. Daniel is under the authority and reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He doesn't know what it means, so he calls Daniel in. Verse 26 says, The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in this interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mysteries about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. Uh, You're being ridiculous, King Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody knows that. However, verse 28, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Once again, God is uh, making known to the king what is going to take place. He is in authority over the king. Uh, Verse 47, Daniel chapter 2. The king answered Daniel and said, surely, this is after he revealed the dream, right? He said, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So Nebuchadnezzar has a moment where he realizes the power and authority of God. We'll see a moment later on in chapter three. Chapter three is where we see Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah um, refusing to bow down to this, Statue that Nebuchadnezzar has established and said you must worship this statue. Verse 14 of chapter 3 says Nebuchadnezzar responded to them and said it is true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that's the, uh, the same three people that you do not serve my gods and worship the golden image that I have set up. In verse 16 these three men replied to the king O oh, Nebuchadnezzar we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They are rebelling against the authority that God has established. Remember, God brought Nebuchadnezzar in to take them over and Nebuchadnezzar is now telling them you bow down and you worship this statue and they say no we're going to serve God rather than man just like Acts we saw in Acts with uh, Peter Uh, jumping down to verse 28 After God delivered them out of the fire, Nebuchadnezzar responded and he said, Blessed be the God of these three men who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except for their own God. And now... That was another glimpse of the humility of King Nebuchadnezzar. But he fell in, verse, or in chapter 4. Uh, he gets puffed up with his pride. And we see, starting in verse uh, 30 of chapter 4, uh, this pride of Nebuchadnezzar, where the king reflected and he said, Is this not Babylon, the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind. And your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you, and you will recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, he said, uh, At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So we see God is ruler over all. We see examples of uh, people turning from, the governing authorities said over them. We see the same thing in chapter six when Daniel refuses not to pray to God. In fact, he does it very openly so that he can honor God. So yes, we honor government, but not above God. Uh, we see this not only with governing authorities over us, but in all areas of life. In Hebrews 13.17, it talks about obeying your leaders in church and submitting to them as those who keep watch over you who are going to give an account for your souls. However, if your church leader, myself included, tells you to do something that is against God's word, you say, no, I'm going to listen to God rather than man. Hebrew or Ephesians rather, 5.22 says, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Well, if your husband is telling you to something that is sinful you say no i'm going to listen to god rather than man but you do that all the while with respect for the authority that god has put in place over you um we have a lot that we're not going to get to so we're just going to skip over uh verses three and four there's a lot of controversy there Uh, i do want to read this quote to you from john stott so the controversy there is um, these governments are they only to rule as they do if they're being good and not if they're being evil or they set up as idealistic governments that this is how they would operate in an ideal world or um should they be understood in a, a different sense but this quote from john stott says the state's functions are to reward the good and to punish the evil The restraint and punishment of evil are universally recognized as prime responsibilities of the state. When governmental authorities punish evildoers, they are functioning as (coughs) servants of God, agents of wrath on them. God's wrath, which one day will fall on the impenitent and is now seen in the breakdown of the social order, also operates through the process of law enforcement and the administration of justice. We human beings as private individuals are not authorized to take the law to our own hands and punish individuals. The punishment of evil is God's prerogative, and during the present age, he exercises it through the law courts. In this distinction between the role of the state and the individual, we may perhaps say that we as individuals are to live according to love rather than justice, whereas the state operates according to justice rather than love. And, of course, he goes on, he makes some qualifications on that last statement because it's not a complete true thing that we live according to love and the government lives according to justice. But overall, that's a decent statement. All right. Looking at Romans 13, 7. We'll just skip down there for a second. Uh, we see that we are to render to all what is due. So this isn't just talking about taxes, even though taxes are explicitly mentioned. But. Uh, we are to give honor and respect to those who God has placed an authority over us. Um, <laughs> that's just talking about sales tax, right? No, that's, that's all tax. Huh. So, we see Paul do this in Acts chapter 23 when he is slapped of um, and by the high priest's command and Paul cries out he says, well, God strike you you whitewashed wall. And somebody says, are you really going to talk to the high priest that way? And Then Paul steps back and he says, oh dude, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know that was a high priest. So he had this respect, this honor for authority. We see this all throughout First uh, and Second Samuel as Saul is pursuing David. He takes away his wife, takes away his best friend. He's pursuing David to death, trying to kill him. Uh, David has great opportunity. He has an army in man on the side, his army's even suggesting him, uh, backing him, saying, kill him, kill him. God's given him to your hands. And David says, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He had respect and authority for even the king who was pursuing him, Um, not just to pay him taxes, but to honor him, to show reverence. David, this man after God's own heart, was not a man to badmouth his king to lay a hand on his king. He felt guilty for cutting off a corner of his rope to prove that he could have killed him. Uh, David would never uh, be a man to uh, say, let's go Brandon, right? He has this honor and this reverence for his king, for the authority that God put over him. So, just uh, a lot of this we'll dig into a little bit more next week, but as we're thinking on this passage, passage throughout the week and how we ought to apply it in our own lives, Um, I have a a few concrete truths that I think that we should hold on to that we can definitely take from this passage that we should um, use as we seek to apply it. The first is that we would do well to distinguish between civil governments and human relationships. That God has these two different systems in place and we are to operate differently based upon um, whether or not he's talking to civil governments or uh, in personal relationships. We see that all authority is from God. That he is absolutely sovereign over the good rulers and the bad rulers. So again, even in our day, uh, Putin or Xi Jinping, uh, they're in power and they've been given this authority by God. He is the one who has put them there. That doesn't necessarily mean that he is condoning everything that they do. Uh, Also, we don't have the option to completely ignore our divinely established governments. We are not an autonomous people. We are not self governed God has given us these authorities and we don't have the right to completely ignore what they have given to us and how they govern. However, at the same time we have to recognize that God is a higher authority and therefore there are times and occasions for quote-unquote disobedience to the human government. And if we do decide to disobey, then we should be willing to accept those consequences, just as these examples throughout Scripture. So, there's somewhere in there, there's a line of how government should operate, and we will seek to approach that line next week. Yeah, we're not going to have all the answers, but that's where we're going to go next week. We have like half a minute for any questions (laughs) on all of that.
1: I always, always sticks in my mind that at the Nuremberg trials after World War II, you had an international court that was trying to try these Nazis who had murdered millions of people. Yeah. And the constant refrain 100% of the time was, we were following orders, but is there not a higher authority than the orders of your nation? Yeah. Basically.
0: Jeremy says he wants to do a skit with Jerry next week where he's Hitler and Jerry's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So <laughs> that'll be fun. Right on. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the authorities you put in place over us and all the good that they bring. We pray for wisdom and how to navigate that and God we pray that you would help us to submit to you and to your revealed truth uh, most of all we thank you for your word and pray that as we look into uh, how we got your word and how it is to be understood and applied, that you give us again just wisdom from above and thank you for your people for your church help us to love and honor you in all that we do Amen, Amen.